Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. John from Econ, sing, sing long, John from, Jake gratis come, sing, sing long, John from, John from Econ, sing, sing long, John from, Jake gratis come. Sing, sing, long, John from. Greetings, Seekers, and uh, hilarious. This is what I loved. I mean, this is it for me, right? Please don't imagine that I go home and it's better. It's not. <laughs> Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Ken Campbell was one of a kind. An unconventional performer, wordsmith, theatre director, comedian, trickster and creative powerhouse. For this unique series, we'll be plundering Ken's archive to bring you the best recordings of his one-man shows, as well as other selected treats. Jamais vu, Daisy, the third and final part of the Bold trilogy. And the recording we've got, I think, again, like so many of the recordings for this podcast series, is the only version, the only complete version of Jamais vu that we've been able to uncover. And this was recorded at the National Theatre when he was doing all three in one day. I think he's doing all three in one day at this point, which was a killer. And I mean, you can slightly hear it in his voice. <laughs> it's, um, But um, yeah, what a challenge to do to do three two-hour monologues in a day and hold all that in your head. That's kind of, that's quite something. And what you've got here in your hand is uh, the Duke portrait of Prince Philip by Tim Heald. And this is one of the big sources of information for, for the show, isn't it? Yes, I mean, this is actually one of his most annotated books, believe it or not, full of notes and scribbles. Um, and ideas at the back. Yes. I mean, even ideas we can see here that, of, of directions the show might have gone in, That's referencing right. John Frum and uh, the captain from Pig Spurt, yeah. Yasser, the, the volcano. The volcano, absolutely. Well, you know, this is, we need to remember, this is, he was writing this sort of during, you know, the Annis Horribilis, as the Queen called it, which was the whole... Um, uh, Charles and Diana split and Camilla, you know, the Camilla revelation and the royal family were never, ever out of the news uh, with more and more sort of lurid um, details coming coming out constantly and Dad was loving it. But of course, you know, he, um, he, had, to, he, he had to find a way to, to tell the tale of the royals unlike any tale that... Um, that anyone else had come up with. I think it, I'm glad you said that because because I think it puts the show a bit more in context yeah. as well. Then doesn't it? Yes. Because because yeah, the the idea of, of saving the royal family. Exactly. Yes, that's his quest is to save yeah. is to save the royal family. But the uh, the means is um, not what anyone else would have ever dreamt up. I think. Well, I think what I what I like about uh, one of the many things that I like about about uh, about your dad's work is. Is for this for this particular monologue, he's taken very um, you know everyday themes of British culture, which are um, the BBC, you know, the Director General of the BBC, and the royal family. And yet, classic Ken, he's dug below the surface and he's found these strange conspiracies that connect them together in the weirdest way. <laughs> yes, um, and you know, connecting them with with a. Uh, with the, with cargo cults and uh, you know with the Gads Hill Library, it's just it you know yeah yeah and you know and, and lead him on this quest to the South Pacific, which mm. um, and so the second half of it becomes more of a sort of travelogue, really. I mean, I think most of most of what he describes in the second half is just his his travels to the South Pacific, which were quite an adventure in themselves. 
and uh, and all paid for by the national, which we were very <laughs> pleased about. <laughs> so here we are, Jamais Vu, part one. The National Theatre is a military fortress temporarily housing the arts. Its formidable windowless structure, its only opening towards the river, is a giveaway as to its primary purpose, that of defending, protecting a certain elite in times of extreme urban disturbance. There is an identical building on Merseyside, in that case it temporarily houses insurance. Several more are planned. At every National Theatre performance, disguised as regular punters, are National Fortress officials with hidden agenda should things erupt outside. The whole thing is built over cavernous vaults where may be found an array of gas, arms and water cannon. And the whole thing is linked with a secret underground tunnel system of the capital. I received this information from a retired barrister who I was treating to a cup of tea outside the National Film Theatre. Uh, both his practice and his marriage had fallen apart due to bad breath. And he now lived with his dog in a box. I said, uh, I said well, your breath seems all right now. Oh, he said, this life suits me, he said. I think the breath was a cry for help. We wandered the um, few yards over to that little open book market and he was good enough to show me into, um, into this book. James Whittaker's Diana versus Charles and particularly into this chapter here, the Dirty Tricks chapter in which we learn who it is who may be bugging the royal family and how they do it. Did you know this? They're picking up conversations from miles away from vibrations in the floorboards, vibrations in the window panes. And uh, it prints the whole of the Camilla Gate tape. I bought it. With regard to what we're up to with our royal family now, you know, this style of stuff. Sud off, says the Queen. Uh, Philip's kicking the goulash. Uh, my a new um, legal chum said this. He said, um, isn't it a bit like you've got an old dog and you can't quite make up your mind whether to have the thing put down or not? So to help you get clear on the matter, you torture it. I said, wow, yeah. Um, anyway, I'd been uh, summoned to that part of the world by a phone call from the National Theatre, Richard Eyre's office. They wanted to know, was I thinking of doing any more of these one-man show things? I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I wasn't. As I rather felt I'd, I'd wrung my life dry of any good anecdotes. Yes, I said. And anyway, they said, so that would make three. Hmm, I said. So he said, so, that, so it would be a trilogy. Well, I said, yes, I suppose it would then, yes. Well, they said, well, they, well, they said, there is a chance you might be able to launch your new one off here at the National Theatre if you're prepared to do all three on one day. Blimey, I said, oh, no, because this is the year of the trilogy. Oh, I, said, I said, sorry, I didn't know that. I said, well, is, is that generally or just at your place? They said, no, no, we're doing all three David Hare plays all on one day. We're calling that a trilogy. So if we had yours on, it would seem like trilogies are in the wind. Well, well, I found it really quite stirring. Uh, so I set off with my um, case and Zimmer combination. It, uh, I hadn't got a lot in it, but it gets you through the beggars. And um, <coughs> out of Waterloo, I popped down to that cheap hardware stores. I bought a, a selection of sink plungers, enough, I hope, to get me through the uh, preliminary meeting. And um, oh, yeah, but then I was early, so I had a little chat with the, um, the, the, the boxed barrister. Oh, and then I, then I saw that John Burt was going to be on uh, that evening at the Na National Film Theatre. 
John Burt was going to be talking live to Jeremy Isaacs, uh, who was also going to be live. So I, I, I bought a ticket for that, and then it was um, time to get in there into the National Fortress. Um, you've heard about the hair trilogy, says Richard Eyre. I said, yes. I said, I understand you want a, a bald trilogy. Very good, he said. Now, he said, um, he said what, what, what sort of thing uh, where, where will the new one be? God, I, was, I, mean, I had to hold him off. I said, um, I said, I said Richard, um, do, you, do you know uh, about artists' choice? He said, um, tell us. Well, I said, I said, as I understand it, there are but three choices open to the artist. One, which is possible, you, you can distract entertain and deceive about the true state of things thus actually be helping to sustain the wrongs of the status quo or two you can pose as exposing wrongs but in fact deceive and so actually still be helping to sustain the wrongs of the status quo but as i, as I understand it um, both choice one and choice two can lead to obes and knighthoods yeah or, or the third choice which alas is not possible you can expose wrongs and bring about change. Not possible, because if you really know what's going on, you've got to sign a thing saying you're not going to tell anyone. Um, not even, in fact, especially not the Prime Minister. I said, but I've just got this thought that there, there might actually be a fourth choice which might be possible to pose as exposing wrongs, but in fact deceive, but with a, a willful mix of truth and lie, research and fantasy, so inscrutably compounded as to send the status quo hunting for needles that nobody's lost in haystacks which don't exist, thus um, distracting from the ensuing release of hitherto imprisoned forces which might bring about change, but of an unpredictable nature. Well, I said, Richard, he said, he said what, you, and you'll go for the fourth choice, will you? Hmm. I said, I said maybe, maybe some sort of comic, epic, science fiction, conspiracy weepy. Hmm. Uh, Richard said, um, he said, you do know our audiences aren't as bright as the ones you're used to. I, I said, oh, no, really? Oh, yeah, he said, he said you're used to your lo loyal little bunch who, who turn up in some part-converted bacon-curing works. He said, and they really come to be there with you. He said, a lot of ours just come to have been there. Oh, I said, right, so, so make, it, make it short then. No, he said, you know, he said, our, our lot like to suffer. He said, it's all, all part of it. He said, the worry though is, he said, that um, the last one-man show we had here was this dangling French-Canadian uh, talking about Jean Cocteau and jazz. He said, I, I'm just a bit worried that our audience might be a bit phased if they find themselves following yours. Oh, right. I said, what, what, so, so make it obscure then. Oh, yeah, he said, make it obscure, but not so obscure that it couldn't be unravelled in a couple of lines by Billington. He said, he said now, he said, your, your, your dramatic structure, he said, you got any thoughts on that? He said, I understand in your last show, Pigspurt, you, you based it on a hat stand. And yeah, that was true, actually. Uh, Pigspurt, or Six Pigs from Happiness, uh, is it, six contrasting narrative strands held together by a haloed centerpiece common to them all and that's god coming through the wall at the end isn't it said richard i said yes um <clears throat> he said and this one i said well I, I i was toying with basing this one on a sink plunger act one would be circular in form in act two we would appreciate that we had been experiencing the base of a dome 
Act three, we get a handle on it. Oh, I said, Richard, he said, yeah. He said, uh, phallic. He said, also, also volcanic. He said, look, it's like, a, like an upsurge of lava. He said, he said, will you actually have um, a sink plunger on stage with you? I said, uh, yes. He, he said, no, let me like properly dramatically justified. I said, yes. He said, how will you do that? And uh, I, uh, I found myself telling him about my late mate, Eddie Davis. Now, when I met Eddie Davis, he was an old man then, and some, some men, when they get old, they, they, they go like babies. You know, that's why Eddie was one of those. He's like a tubby, chubby old baby. And quite simply, you fell in love with him. You just wanted to play with him. Now, um, is it professionally, he, he styled himself an eccentric character dancer and hokum maniac. Listen, Eddie wasn't one of the, the sort of artists who uh, Richard Eyre could have said, now, now, Edward, I think the author only intended titters here. Because Eddie, Eddie was a hunter of the wild guffaw. Once he got one of those insights, he needed, he needed hysteria. An audience helpless, begging for less. And he had that trick that a lot of the old timers had, you know, suddenly excruciating their body, literally make an audience pee themselves. And um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 30s, he toured in that uh, comedy thriller, uh, Poison Piano. And he, he played Pedal Peterson, you know, the, uh, the, the deaf, mute, armless amputee who, who plays um, a classical concert piano with his feet. And, um, and in, in that Act 3 climax, uh, when Pedal learns uh, that, that the poison is in the trousers, you know, he, he's got poison trousers on, I mean, Eddie has his rubbery legs trying to divest themselves of um, the plague soil pants up the wall over the piano and everything. In Cardiff, he really hit it. He, uh, he hit the hokum high, he clanged the lost chord of comedy and the Cardiff audience was laughing, weeping, groaning, shrieking, choking, farting, pooing, weeing, folding as some Welshmen actually exploding and expiring in their own juices of waste. I said, bloody hell, I said, I said how did you do that? He said, uh, he said I, I wouldn't tell you, son, if I knew. He said, you don't realise the awesome power of comedy. He said, it can kill. God. I, I said, um, I, I, I said uh, do, you, do you ever regret it? Do you ever regret Cardiff at all, Eddie? He said, uh, well, he said, I'm, I'm just happy it was Welshman. <laughs> his, um, his, last, uh, his last real job um, was in My Fair Lady. He just had three lines as one of Doolittle's men. My Fair Lady, out on tour. And um, on the tour, there was a sink blockage in the dressing room one time. And Eddie said to Peter Bayliss, who was playing Doolittle, he said, instead of just thumping me on the head, he said, ram me on the head with a sink plunger. Anyway, this turned out to be such a hit uh, that Ed was now in and out of hardware stores amassing an incredible sink plunger collection, you know. And he was a great pro. He was timing the different reactions before they bring off, assessing suction coefficients. And anyway, the whole thing became such a yell that he had to have his own private personal curtain call, you know? <laughs> he had his three lines. Uh, but that was until the, the, the last date of the tour. And then, then he was going to come into the West End and Gillian Lynn, the choreographress, was adamant. She said, I'll tell you what she said before this goes into town. She said, Eddie Davis has got to go. She said, do you know, he, he, he took the curtain call on Saturday with six sink plungers on his head. She said, my fair lady just isn't about sink plungers. And um, uh, Richard said, what? He said, and, uh, you'll, uh, you'll stick a plunger on for your show, will you? I said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'll contrive to get it on 
quite early in the proceedings. I said, yeah, and maybe as a setup for the end. I said, maybe you know, because at the end of my thing, sometimes they get so convoluted and weird. I said, maybe if I had a plunger on my head, it would, it would lighten it. Chapman Revick said, Richard, it would be something for all those who aren't following it to look at. He's, he, he's, he's, uh, that was the genius of Lepage's uh, dangling interludes. He said, um, he said, can you get six on? I don't know. Um, uh, I got here. Uh, it's like a king one. I sucker six sink plungers onto my head. It was it seemed like that had gone quite well. And um, and and then it was um, time for John Burt. Now I, I'm just going to have a hold a moment here, see, because uh, sometimes there's some Americans in. Other foreigners come here, and uh, they don't know who we mean by John Burt. Um, John John Burt foreigner is uh, um, the, uh, the, the director general. John Burt is the director general of the BBC. He got this job when on January or something and uh, it was a little bit controversial and we were treated to articles of this nature. Big Brother's reign of terror at the BBC. Attack on Burt cult rocks BBC. And, and, and what I'm talking about, this was the actual week when Excuse me. Uh, John Burt's alleged ploy of having his company employed by the BBC rather than himself personally and paying his missus 30 grand a year for not doing awfully much really had seemed such a scandal that the tabloids had uh, allowed the royal family off the front pages just for a couple of days and we had John Burt there. Anyway, uh, so the, it was in the big auditorium there, um, the NFT1, and the place was packed with um, sports hoping to watch one of the great squirm. And Jeremy Isaacs was terrific. I mean, was like he was there, John Burt would be here. And um, Jeremy Isaacs played him, played him like, like, like he was a great angler. Except it was as if there were no fish. It, it was a uh, sort of kind of exciting how little charisma John Burt had. I was taking notes on the thing I wrote down, uh, the man who fell to earth, an alien inadequately briefed. And cause you, you, can't, you can't hold on to what John Burt has just said. You know what he's saying, it, it seems clear enough, but it, it's, like trying to, um, it's like trying to grab hold of um, a lump of raw liver while sitting in a bath of engine oil. And uh, I thought maybe the, pro the problem is this here, that. Um, BBC personnel object to being laid off by him. You know, if it had been a, a big jolly man, a Maxwell, uh, some sort of gorilla, well, yeah, well, they say, oh, okay, game's up, they'd have buggered off. To... But to be dismissed by um, a gent who's, um, whose prime gift seemed to be that of retrospective absence. As really at the end of, at the, end of the do, you recall a little more than the, the glasses and the suit. Anyway. I, I had motive for being in that audience because I was an addict. Uh, and John Burt was one of the big pushers. Uh, I, I was addicted to television news. And to be sure, I mean, very often I could, I could get past breakfast without a fix, but then 20 to 1, 1 o'clock, 20 to 6, 6 o'clock, over to Channel 4 for 7 o'clock, uh, 9 o'clock, bong, 10 o'clock, and, and, and then grab a quick beer and settle, settle in with Newsnight. But my problem was this here, the more this information was coming in, the less I seemed to know about anything, you know, like things I hadn't known before and seemed to have got disappeared backwards in, in, into the box. And I mean, presumably, my mind must have been somewhere while I was watching the thing, but I could never retrieve where that had been. And this uh, appalling void into which my addiction was plunging me was having effect on other parts of my life. 
For example, I was, uh, I was sitting on the toilet and I, I saw it run out of paper. And it was coming in and so I hobbled downstairs to the kitchen to, to get the kitchen roll. To find I'd returned with a spoon. I mean, where had my mind been? I mean, every clue as to what I was doing in the kitchen had been round my ankles. Also, I, I was losing possession of my own face. I, I'd forgotten what the things meant to look like when you're taking an intelligent interest in what someone's saying to you. you know? And that, and that, seekers, is when we are slipping on the dangerous ice of jamais vu. Deja vu is when you go somewhere you've never been there before and you get that feeling. I've been here before. Jamais vu is when you go home and you go, fuck, I've never been here before. <laughs> and it's an um, interesting case of jamais vu in Scotland last year. Um, a girl got jamais vu on her father. <clears throat> fella came uh, home from work. She thought, I don't know who that is. It's not my dad. It's not my dad. And then she became fixed with the notion it was an android. And so to prove the point, she, she, she crept up on him and pulled, pulled his throat out to expose the wires. And she was wrong. Have you ever been uh, back to see a film again and your favourite moment isn't in it? Uh, or you reread a book and, and they've changed the plot. Um, in, in the almost free hospital, Hampstead, a, a patient there woke up uh, and there was an alien in the bed with him. An alien. It was growing out of one of his buttocks. Said he laid into the thing, he wound up, he wound up on the floor with it. And he was trying to strangle it. He saw that the ghastly thing didn't have hair exactly, it had toes. He'd had jamais vu of his own leg. <laughs> anyway, as I was, um, as I was sitting in the auditorium of the NFT, because uh, we'd been told that John Burt was going to take questions from the house, I was trying to put together um, a query on these phenomenon. And when all of a sudden, John Burt wasn't there. And a voice from the back said, Oi, Mr. Bird, I thought there was going to be questions. Anyway, he's gone. And I was having a pee in the uh, National Film Theatre, and the fellow had shouted out, came in. And uh, it turned out he knew me. He saw the hat stand show. He'd seen Pig's Bird, and we <coughs> got to chatting. Um, his name was um, Oliver. And Oliver said, he said, Did you actually see John Burt go? I said, uh, Well, no, I didn't actually. No, it's like, right, suddenly he wasn't there. Ah, says Oliver. John Burt is amazing. He said, just think for a moment, he said, the knockers, the knockers of John Burt are everywhere. He said, man, he's surrounded, and they're all firing off their salvos at him. He said, well, they never hit him. They only succeed in maiming each other. He said, that Jeremy Isaacs, he was sharp. He was firing off live rounds, he said, but did he hit him once? He said, John Burt is a master of negative hallucination. A master of positive hallucination, like Mesmer, the great old hypnotist Mesmer, could make an audience see something which wasn't there. But a master of negative hallucination, like Gurdjieff, Alistair Crowley, McGregor Mathers, uh, could make an audience not see something which is there. He said John Burt was diverting attention from himself and then paralyzing time. He's able to invoke a, a cloud of not to be inquired into ness. He only allows his audience to perceive him with their unconscious mind and then somehow he can inhibit any traffic between the unconscious and the conscious mind. So you recall him little more than as in a dream. 
gee, as I was hearing all this stuff about Berg, I, thought, I was becoming such a fan of the man. I couldn't wait not to see him again. A couple of days later, I was in Finsbury Park. I was walking the dog, and there was a shout from behind me. Oi, Ken! I turned around, there's a fellow in a wheelchair. You know, I was wheeling up. I was in some marathon wheelchair right? Oi, Ken! And he had, um, this fellow had um, a potty hat on. Um, his was better than this. He's had, um, he's had a tassel. Oi, Ken! I, I couldn't think that I knew him, and I didn't, actually. He'd recognised me from a photograph that there is of me on the published edition of my panto script, Old King Cole. And because he'd been in it, he'd, be, he'd played the Baron in an all-wheelchair production of the thing. I said, wow! I said, I said no, and, uh, how terrific. I said, I said, normally if anyone ever recognises me, they recognise me from some crap on the box. Now, this is what was interesting. This bloke, Jake, his name was, he, he said he hadn't watched TV for years. He said uh, TV videos even gave him fits. He said TV had fucked his oculoendocrine system. I said, wow, I said, is that why you're in a wheelchair? No, he said, that's how come he watched so much TV, his oculoendocrine system was fucked. Anyway, he was now a stand-up comedian, except for the standing up bit. And um, anyway, so he started talking about comedians and whatnot. And he said, had I seen Billy Connolly's show at Hammersmith? I said, yeah, so I saw it. He said, what did you think? I said, well, it's terrific. I said, but he doesn't half say fuck a lot now. He said he does say fuck a lot, doesn't he? He said, what, about nine times a sentence? He said he was never like that before, was he? I mean, he might have said fuck once, twice in an evening. If that, Jake said that the night he was there, Connolly was splitting up words to put a fuck up them. He said they're tarm at fucking Adam in the roads at one point. And then, he, and then he split a fuck up to put a fuck up there. He said fuck fucking yelling hell at one point. And Jake, I mean, Jake had been a follower, a devotee of Connolly from the beginning. And he said, if that's where the master is leading us, he said, I, I, you know, I've got to find out what this is about. He said, do you, do you, you realise? He said, it doesn't start until Billy Connolly starts hobnobbing with the royal family. And that's what they're like, apparently, effing and blinding way beyond troopers. And, and, Billy, and Billy Connolly was freaked. And that's what his show at Hammersmith was all about. He was trying to get through subliminally to his audience, you know? It's like, you know, he's saying, look, I've shaved me beard off, look. And I'm saying, fuck, 90 times a minute. I say, he said, where have I just been? Who have I just been with? Pick up, won't you, somebody? I mean, he really was so concerned that something extremely sinister was happening to the royal family. Anyway, he, he couldn't do much more, and then he started to nearly get run over by the same vehicle a lot. <laughs> and um, that's how he scrammed off to be um, a Yank sitcom tart, as <laughs> he put it. He said, is it here yet, that programme? He said, have you seen it? I said, I don't know. I said, I only watch news, and I don't, I don't, I don't watch that now. Now, this was of interest. Is, um, Jay, I mean, he's such a perky guy, and he'd just come from his sister's funeral, and same problem, he said, tapping his wheelchair. I, I said, uh, I, I said you, you must have a secret, you're so merry. I said, hey, well, come on, Ken, he said. Well, they, he said, they never really go from us, do they? I said, uh, well, well, no, of course not. Oh, come on, Ken, he said. He said, you must have a lot of dead people in your life by now. I said, well, yeah, I've got, got enough, yeah. He, he, said, well, he said, well, don't they ever come into your mind really clear? I said, yeah. He said, well, when they do, he said, you should say hello. He said, say, hi, Dad, hi, Doris, whatever. He said, if he was ever blue, ever depressed, what was rare, he used a dick nose and laughing mirror. And he was um, kind enough to give me his set. Um, and there, were, there was uh, plenty more in the shop in St Albans, apparently. The thing is, if you give it time, it does work. Hmm. Anyway, um, I said, um, 
I, I said, you might be just a chap I need. I said, I've got to be doing a show soon. It's going to launch off at the National Theatre. And I said, and I'm, uh, I am uh, on the look for some uh, ideas. Oh, Ken, he said, he said, let, he said, let me give you an act. I'll give you an act that'll go down a storm there. He said, you can have it. He said, it's called The Great Spunko. And you have to be announced as the great spunk, oh, and then you, uh, you just come on in front of the audience and just stand there, um, sort of like this, apparently. But what they don't realise is that this is a false arm, you see, and your real arm's down inside your shirt. And so that you, you, you undo your flies from the inside and, and then let off shaving foam. <laughs> he, said, um, he said, it's not a long act. He said, um, it is, it's, uh, it's like an attention getter. <laughs> I, I, I said, have you ever been to the National Theatre? He said, no, no, he hasn't. I said, no, no, I said, that's a good, I said, half a good act that, Jake. I said, but it's, it's like it's yours, really. I said, you should, you should probably keep it. He said, no, he said, because he, he tried it and apparently it was tasteless from a wheelchair. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, look, we are, we're talking here about the Royal National Theatre. I said, I said, the sort of thing they want, they'll want me to have like a quest, you know, the whole night have to be, have some sort of quest about it, another dangled bits of entertainment off it, hopefully. Oh, he, he hadn't realised it was the Royal National Theatre. Mm. Uh, well, well, he said, he said, why don't you carry on with Connolly's work then? I, I said, well, what does it mean? He said, well, save the Queen. He said, save, save the monarchy. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, if, if Billy Connolly thought it was worthwhile, he said, I'm sure it is. I said, did you used to use the Gants Hill Library? Yes, he said. Oh, well, blimey. Well, then, and then I felt at home. The Gants Hill Library. Listen, in the 60s, the swinging legendary 60s, I, I spent most of them in the Gants Hill Library. I left the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in 1960. I was a fully qualified, diplomaed comedy performer. But Ned Sherrin, people like that, had the power, and they were only looking for new comedians who'd had a university education. It wasn't good enough to be, um, be amusing and have read the newspapers. You had to have read the newspapers at Cambridge, you see. And so, uh, and not being a lot in demand, it made sense to stay at my dad's. Lived in Barking Side. And our local library was the Gans Hill Library. So I went down the Gans Hill Library to give myself an education. But when I got there, I found the basement. The basement of the Gans Hill Library. Now down in the basement of the Gans Hill Library was all the books that nobody was reading. All the books, you know, that nobody was taking out or there'd been complaints about. In fact, I think Gans Hill was some sort of depot for all the books in the area that um, no one was reading. And I thought, well, if I read all the books that nobody else is reading, I have got, that will distinguish me. You know, my, my, my rise through and above the herd will be guaranteed. I was in error there. I mean, really, young people, in your formative years, you must have a directed reading list, you know? No, no matter that in some basement you may exhume something of way more moment and alarm. No, no, you, you, keep to the, you keep to the syllabus, keep to the regular syllabus. Otherwise, um, it will estrange you from the herd. You know, do you know, they, they write about me that I'm mad. They write, in newspapers, they write that I'm mad. I mean, what do you think my daughter makes of that when she reads that? I'm not mad, arsehole. I just read different books, all right? <laughs> anyway, um, Henry, Henry Katz was one of what we called the camaraderie, the fraternity of the basement. And, and uh, Henry Katz had this very black friend, and they used to plough through old missionary books together, and Katz had a beret, 
and cycle clips. But <laughs> he didn't have a bike. His cycle, his cycle clips was like his library style. And, um, and it was, it was Cats who gave me this uh, terrific tip. He said, you see, is that librarian girl bothering you? I said, no, no, she's all right. She's sort of quite sweet in a way. He said, look, he said, if she's bothering you, he said, just take this tip. He said, just put a little bit of cotton wool in one ear. He said, and then she'll leave you alone. He said, that works on all women, that does. He said, he said, because it, it just goes in subliminally that maybe you're a bit waxy. <laughs> it's that, yeah. No, it's, 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 it does work. I tell you what, my, my cousin got these awful ear growths from his mobile phone. And, um, and he had to wad his ear out, and his marriage agreed it was already shaky. He didn't last the week. Anyway, anyway, down, you see, down in the basement, I mean, we could kick up a racket down there. We used to arge and barge and debate the days away. But, oh, you know, there was one thing that used to unite us, I would say. You know, and to put it into words, it would be something like, thou shalt not believe. You mustn't believe in anything. I mean, if you, if you, if you trace any belief back, you'll, you're going to find it's the product of some human mind. And the products of the human mind are not ba worth basing any, any belief on. Religion, do you know what the word religion means? It comes from the root word religiare to bind. You see, religion is the lies that bind you. But, but I mean, I was encouraged to suppose. Oh yeah, suppose things. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that opens the mind. Yeah, suppose anything like that. Suppose the God Almighty, suppose flying saucers, suppose fairies at the bottom of your garden. I mean, you could also suppose that one religion had got it right. I mean, you, you could suppose it. <laughs> it was just, I mean, but if you, if, you, if you believe that your belief is it, well, then you, I mean, well, that's what the ancient Greeks called hubris. You see, if you believe that your belief is it, he said, well, he said it's going to be very nasty for you and all concerned and probably several innocent bystanders. My dad started to get a bit, a bit uh, concerned about the uh, company I was keeping at the Gansill Library. He's a lovely guy, my dad. He always let his mind be known in a humorous way. And in, in the war, he was a Morse wireless telegraphist. And he, he taught me Morse at a very young age. Uh, who here knows this, right? That the Morse for a laugh is mim. Two dashes, two dots, two dashes. Because that's how it sounds. Ha ha, he he, ha ha. Anyway, anyway my, my, my dad had just won a competition. Um, Lever's Soap. Lever's Soap, but, um, you had to write a jingle for their, for their new shaving product. And my dad had submitted, What shaved the face of Dirty Dick? Why, Lever's Easy Shaving Stick. And they sent him a, a box of a hundred of the things. Anyway, he scooped out a handful and gave them to me. He said, yeah, he said, take these down to the library. He said, maybe some of your chums at the library might want to take up shaving. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I took them down and I, uh, I, I, I gave um, Henry Katz one. And he, he looked at it and he showed it to his very black friend. And then he, he tossed it, bong, in a waste paper can. And he said the last war was fought between the baddies who turned Jews into soap to wash their frightful German bodies and the goodies who turned the South Pacific Islanders into soap to wash their fine British bodies. <laughs> well, I've never forgotten that. I've never, never quite known what it meant, but very impressive. And I forgot to ask him on this occasion what it meant. As his, his next revelations were so bizarre. He said both the programme content and the technology of TV are behaviour modifiers. He said, there's a hell of a difference between the cinema and TV, you know. He said, with the cinema, they're just projecting pictures onto a screen, but with TV, he said, they're firing cathar rays through phosphors and pixels and whatnot, and cathar rays are dangerous. 
For example, they stuck a trailload of sparrows in front of a TV and just transmitted green on them. With the result that the female sparrows went infertile and the male sparrows' bollocks grew so big they couldn't fly. I, I, I said, and, uh, and, I said, and te television uh, fucks your occupational endocrine system, I've heard. <laughs> I burns it out, said Cat. So what is that, though? What, what, is, a, what is your oculoendocrine system? Oh, well, he said, um, he said uh, your eyes is just your brain peeping out from time to time, isn't it? <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, okay, fine. I said, so, so, so you're telling me that you get to what? Recruited subliminally through the TV. Well, no, he said, let's say you get softened by the TV, and then if they pick up that you're potential, I said, how do they do that? He said, well, one way is with the licensed detector vans. He said, then they'll start firing programs individually through your TV set, individually tailored to meet your requirements, or rather, their requirements of you. He said, your TV, your radio will start to address you directly. He said, a lot go completely up the pictures at that point. He said, but if you can handle that, then they'll move on to phase two, direct broadcasting or narrow casting into the brain and nervous system. He said, uh, it's technically, it's called um, psychotronical broadcasting or intracranial channeling. <coughs> no, Kenneth, he said, it's the, uh, the transhuman condition, he said. He said, anyway, he said, now you see why it's... Um, why it's vital to have John Burt in there at the helm of the BBC, to make sure that on the official channel that, that it, it continues to disgust the viewers with themselves, with their world. Um, TV, news, drama, sitcoms, game shows, kiddie cartoons, all must give out their little bits of anxiety, which will rise up the scale to high anxiety, culminating in terror. The Qatar rays open you up and then John fires the business in. He said, which is a kindness. So they'll all welcome the final program when they up the BF. A BF standing for beat frequency. Beat frequency, chaps, beat frequency oscillation. Now you know, you know how um, opera singers can smash glasses with the power of their, with, with, with their voices? It's actually because they set up, they, they, they find the actual uh, resonancy of glass or something, and it sort of just pulverizes. Anyway, that's, that's something like that, that's how beat frequency works. Anyway, and, and they can work it to a turn on nearly all sets, maybe an old black and white set, only half work on, but certainly all Japanese sets, built in the last 10 years, and they're all fitted with presidential overrides, so they can be switched on by the transmitter, even if they're not plugged in. Anyway, anyway so they, 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 they up the BF, the BF waves come out and they will agitate the brain and nervous system pleasurably. You know, like, a, like, like the ultimate vibrator, it will reduce everyone to silliness, too um, silly to do anything towards their own future, amused to death. I said, if someone wanted to... Um, save the Queen, save, save the monarchy in, in all this. I said, well, how in your estimation would they go about that? He said, well, I, said, I can... Uh, I could only think they'd start with the Duke. He said, because he, he, he said, Philip is, Philip's tough. He said, well, and of course, he is the only one of them who's a god. I said, it is, he? Oh, yeah, no, he's a god. He said, yeah, no, he's worshipped in, uh, in Vanuatu. I said, really? I, I said, I said, what have you told me all this anyway? I said, uh, am I being recruited? He said, you already were, Kenneth, some time ago. Uh, he said, uh, do you ever go back to the Gansill Library? I said, I wouldn't know if it's still there. 
He said, go with the flow. Maybe those fine times will come back. Ah, oh, yeah, I squeezed his, his shaking hand. Terrific. In Waterstones, I said, um, could I have a book, please, on the Duke of Edinburgh? He said, there isn't one. He said, which is uh, odd, he said, because there have been rumours. He said, no, he said, um, he said, all we've got are these. I said, well, the Duke of Portrait of Prince Philip. I said, well, that, that's what I want. Oh, he said, I'm sorry, he said, I assumed you meant a scandal book. He said, oh, you said we can have these here, we can't remain to these. I, I was um, dipping into it on the tube. And did you notice that our, our royal family don't have a family tree? They have a family forest, a jungle. I mean, Timmy says it would defeat, you know, any one human brain to comprehend it, you know, you'd have to feed it into a computer to understand it. Uh, the Duke is a wizard deck hockey. He'd be likely to take your legs off if you stood between him and the ball. Anyway, I got off the, I got off the tube, bought a bottle of whiskey, and um, there was, there was um, a TV licensed detector van was parked at the top of my road, but I didn't get um, paranoid at all. I mean, bloody thing got me somewhere. And I got home. I mean, I was rather excited about this book, to be honest. I mean, the fact that nobody was reading it, it sort of made it like a, you know, like a Gantz Hill book. I don't know if you like this, if it's a book you're really excited in, you can't, really, you can't start it at the beginning. You sort of go, bye, and sometimes you hit something of magic. Well, I, I did a bit that night. Um, it was this uh, paragraph here, and Tim Heald is, uh, is astounded by the wide range of subjects that they talk about on this trip to Scotland, him and the, him and the Duke. And he's just sort of listing all the things they talked about. And at the end, it says, that, you know, these are things they were talking about. Capital punishment, journalist standards, the poll tax, humour, Billy Connolly, and adapting books for TV. Billy Connolly. I thought I might be onto something here. I thought I'll underline that. And the thing is, this, uh, this other book he'd given me, it's the same book. It's, the, uh, it's just the paperback edition. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll use the um, paperback edition to, um, if I'm going to make marks in it, yeah. I, I'm handing the uh, lady down here, Seekers, the hardback edition, and ask you to verify that this goes, uh, the poll tax humour, Billy Connolly, and adapting books for TV. Can you see that bit? Have you got it? Right. Now, I'm now handing her the paperback edition. Now, this came out only um, uh, less than a year later. Now, there's, that, there's the paragraph as it appears in this book. Just look at the end and see if you see any differences. Showing the book now to audience. No, lady. Billy. Exactly. Billy Connolly has been... Billy Connolly has been removed from the paperback edition. And that, that, that paragraph is identical, except... Billy Connolly, and look, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a question of space. There's room for Billy fucking Connolly there. I mean, for sure, I could think of many innocent reasons for such an omission, but I was only in the grip of sinister ones. I know, wow, what a night we're in for. Now, Billy Connolly is mentioned in neither uh, index, but I'll tell you what it is. Vanuatu. Veneration for Philip 172. Mm. Oh, wow. I, 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 I thought, I've got, I got to ring Richard Eyre now. I've got it. Uh, it was half past two in the morning. I thought, wow, come on. He sounded a bit drowsy. I thought, well, this will rouse him. I said, yeah, Richard, I'm reading to you from the Duke of Portrait of Prince Philip. I said, and it's not a scandal book. In fact, it so isn't they can't sell it. One missing spot in this, in this tour of the Southern Hemisphere was Vanuatu, 1,500 miles east of Queensland and the only place in the world where the Duke of Edinburgh is worshipped, and quite independently of Her Majesty the Queen. 
as the shadows of the great banyan trees lengthen and flying foxes flicker through the dusk. There is one particular item to which the Ayunahanan give their undivided attention and that is the framed photograph of the Duke which is an object of veneration. As I, as I was reading this stuff, I saw that the licensed detector van had pulled up outside my house. I thought, who were they monitoring quarter to three in the morning? And um, there, there was no one in the house. Uh, and I, uh, I, I found the remote. I fired the remote up the hall and into the living room. There was nothing on the TV. Just, um, yes, it was on ITV. There was a film just finishing. Its credits were rolling. I I, I said, these, these people, the Iuna Hanun, are permanently spaced out on Carver, the local root-based hooch, which is very considerably stronger than scotch. The men sit staring into space while the women do all the work. The men wear nothing but nambas or penis wrappers, straw cod pieces which hold the sexual organ in a permanently erect position. And the chief has sent a, sent a namba to Buckingham Palace so that the Duke may wear it on his visit. If the, if the Queen accompanies him, she must be careful not to see him drinking carver, because if she does, the local rules insist that she be executed, summarily and on the spot with a single blow on the head with a giant root. If she does not accompany him, the Duke will be allocated three wives, bearing a dowry of pillows and pigs. Understandably, perhaps, the Duke has never paid them a visit. I did it, I did it, Richard, this isn't all. I said, did you notice that the next, the next ice age is imminent? I said, and, uh, and there's an elite who plans to, you know, they're going to, you know, disinhabit the, um, the hot belt. And the French are going to blow themselves up a whole new continent. You said, you know, those underground nuclear tests, they're going to blow themselves up a whole new continent in the South Pacific. And the Duke of Edinburgh is involved in this. I said, I don't know on what side, probably his own. And Billy Connolly. I said, except he's, he's been scared off now and mysteriously removed from the paperback edition. I said, listen, so, uh, so Richard... Grabbing plunger to demonstrate. I, I can see the rim. I'm halfway up my dome. <laughs> Richard said, um, he said, you know, I've written in my book about you ringing me up late. I said, oh, I said, why, do I do it a lot? Yes, he said. Do you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't recall ever having done it before. <laughs> Jamais vu. <laughs> and then um, a plummy voice from the living room. Don't forget to switch off your set, Kenneth. Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. It was funded by Arts Council England. The disembodied voice of Ken was Jeremy Stockwell. Music by Richard Kilgour. <laughs>